Well, good evening, everyone. Um, my name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. Um, the election and the left. Um, what can we say? Well, a lot of very important issues were at stake in the election. And I think partly because of that, and because society in Britain is still very polarised about the outcome, at least for a large number of people, there's a sense of sort of stunned silence um, in the wake of it. But we thought it would be a good idea to start the process of discussing what happened and what it means by bringing together a panel of eminent people who are coming from different angles to this question. Now, it's a bit invidious because people have different hats on, but the, the general idea is we have a sophologist, an election specialist, a leading commentator, and a leading activist. Now, of course, they've all got other roles as well, but that's their, that's their sort of charge for tonight. And let me just briefly introduce you to them. So Jane Green um, is our sophologist. Um, she co-directs the British Election Study, which is the gold standard for academic studies of, um, of elections in Britain, and she's also a professor of uh, politics and of British politics in particular at the University of Oxford, where she directs the Gwilym Gibbon Centre for Public Policy. Um, and you might have seen her. She pops up on ITV News and various other outlets as well, so she's a, a, a fixture in British um, commentating life. Next is, is Polly Toynbee, who, who's our commentator, if you like. Um, her columns in The Guardian, which she's been, she's been writing for, for for many years and as a columnist for over 20, um, are really amongst the most widely read and influential um, in, in this country. Um, she's got lots of accolades over the years. Um, at various times, she's won the Orwell Prize. She's been columnist of the year. She's been named the most influential columnist and so on. And you'll know if you read her columns that they're often rooted in um, thorough research, especially about questions of social policy. I should say that before she worked at The Guardian, she worked for the BBC and various other journalistic outlets. And indeed, I believe she worked in a burger bar and briefly as a nurse. So she's got a wide range of experience. And then to my immediate right is Anna Oppenheim, who's our activist. Um, Anna served on the National Executive of the National Union of Students. She's been actively involved in, in Momentum, the organisation founded to support the Corbyn Project in the Labor Party, and she's a co-founder of the Labor Campaign for Free Movement. She's also very involved in Another Europe is Possible, um, and last but not least, she's a graduate of this august institution. So each of our speakers is going to talk for about uh, 10 or 12 minutes and then there's going to be a short period of chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask them all a question. And then after that, it'll be over to you on the floor, and we should have a good half hour or so to, uh, for you to ask questions and have discussion. But before we call on our speakers, can I ask you to welcome Jane Green, Polly Toynbee, and Anna Oppenheimer to the London School. So I have a few slides to show you. As my role as a sophologist, it would be remiss of me not to give you some data. Um, so, what does the election mean for Labour? 
How do we understand the election result? And I want to say that there's an important caveat here, and that is that all we have so far are the constituency level results. And so it's really difficult, it's really preliminary, it's really early, and the danger there, of course, is lots of really important decisions are being made on the basis of that early preliminary analysis and those conclusions. What I did do before the election, in preparation for election night, was try to at least get under the bonnet a little bit and understand what were the factors driving people's votes, or at least at that point, vote intentions away or towards the Labour Party in the 2019 general election. So the British election study, we have tens of thousands of respondents, and we can track those same respondents and their votes before the election and after the election, and so we can see what matters. And I'll just give you six um, brief stories, and I'll show you some data. So, you know, what really matters? And I think, you know, the most important thing to say, it wasn't just Brexit. So I think one, problem number one, it was a problem of competence, strength, delivery, and I think Boris Johnson had a real advantage there in terms of how that was perceived, vis-a-vis Brexit, of course, but not just about that. It was a problem about Brexit, number two, so the Labour Party's votes were squeezed on both sides on that issue, and I don't think there's an easy answer there. I think, well, we can talk about that, I'm sure we will, but there's no easy answer there because Labour was squeezed on both sides. It was also a problem about good old-fashioned left-right economics, and so you can't take that out of the equation. And when I say a problem, I'm talking about Labour's vote losses, people switching away from Labour, but there are also benefits, there are also votes retained on the basis of these things. There was also a challenge on this other dimension, which we call liberal authoritarianism or liberal conservatism, those kind of values that people hold vis-a-vis traditional forms of living, traditional lifestyles and more um, progressive, more uh, contemporary lifestyles, new lifestyles. I think there was the fifth point is that um, you can't take away the question of patriotism and nationalism. And I thought it was really symbolic with um, this kind of, you know, we're looking ahead to Friday and Big Ben is not going to bong. And, um, you know, we can, we can laugh at this, but I thought it was really symbolic for lots and lots of reasons, actually, about Parliament and institutions and pride in our country and, um, and so on, what that conveys. And I thought it was especially symbolic and interesting that that money is instead going to help for heroes, that those people that support Brexit also really care about the nation and about patriotism and about Britishness on other ways. It's not, you know, those values aren't all epitomised in what they think about the EU. And then the final, the sixth challenge and explanation is that geography is incredibly important in this election. So we have to think about why it is that Labour's vote share was equivalent to the vote share achieved in 2005, and yet the seat share was so, so much lower. And so there's a very important story about Brexit there. So I said that Brexit wasn't everything and that we had seat-level data on which to base these kinds of conclusions, and I'll just show you some changes in Labour's share of vote by constituency <coughs> type. So this is the national average in Britain. So these are Labour's losses, a national average of 8% change in share. Seats with the strongest leave vote, and these are just seats that we selected which were based on those um, estimates of the leave vote in um, constituencies. These are groups that we used on election night for our analysis. And you see there that Labour's vote share was down most in seats with the strongest leave vote. But Labour's vote share was down also in seats with the strongest remain vote. And so it's not, you know, you can't just say this was a story about leave 
and remain, although you can, of course, say that there was an important element to it that was about leave and remain. So let's kind of dig in a little bit more and see where Labour's vote share was suffering. And what we can do, what I did here, is I, look at, I looked at all of the different kinds of constituency types that we were analysing on election night and looked at where Labour's vote share was down the most and where Labour's vote share was down the least. And this is, these are some of the, the sort of worst and the better um, types of constituency. I hope you can see here, but I'll just read them out for you in case you can't. So what we have is Labour's largest vote share losses in terms of change of share in strongly leave Labour-held seats, Labour seats where there was a large UKIP vote in 2015. So that's very similar. These are very similar kinds of seats in the northeast one of Labour's heartlands, and of course the northeast is one of the earliest regions where we have results, and so you get that picture very, very early in the night. The least healthy populations. Um, so this is you know, not a great result for the Labour Party in terms of the kinds of seats where Labour would be wanting to most focus some of its public policy efforts. And populations, those areas of the country, those constituencies, were the largest proportions of people that have no educational qualifications. And so um, that's also a very, very stark story in terms of Labour's vote losses on the night. Now, in many of those places, Labour was very far ahead, and so we're just looking at the change in share there. But nevertheless, this is where Labour was least successful in terms of that change on election night. So where did Labour fare less badly, um, seats that were strongly Remain Labour seats. So those seats where the Labour Party held the seat and there was a strong Remain vote. Seats where there were the largest numbers of students. Um, Liberal Democrat target seats. And that's where Labour did least badly. And so there's, I, you know, perhaps you'll start to think, okay, there's maybe a... Um, there's maybe an issue there about the divided nature of the um, Remain vote, and I'll come on to that in a second. And the largest numbers of young people and seats that the Conservative gained from the Liberal Democrats in 2015. So again, there's a, there's a challenge there for the divided nature of the Remain vote. And this is a very substantial change, and if you just take those as proxies for where Labour's demographic is in terms of its vote support, and these are just constituency-level results, these aren't about individuals, but nevertheless they give an important story. And so... Um, what happened? How can we explain this? What occurred? Now that's the topic of a massive talk and I'm not going to have a chance to go into as much detail as perhaps I'd wish I could if I, you know, if I had the luxury of loads and loads of time but that's, we've got other people we really want to hear from more. So a few thoughts so far and again I want to caveat that with this is so far and there's lots of lots of analysis we need with individual data and, and our data will be released in the coming weeks or the coming months and that will really help us to drill down so these are some of my best guesses and some of the things we already know and so I think you know one of the most important lessons of this particular election was that the leave vote united and so what we saw there was the Conservative Party making gains in Labour's heartlands, but making gains only where the Leave vote was very, very high in the referendum in 2016. So the kind of pattern of gains, you could really see the really clear story was that the seats they were picking up were those seats where the Leave vote was highest. 
And what we imagine, what would be consistent with that, would be Labour leave voters moving to the Conservatives. And we have to look at the data and we'll see to what degree that was true. But that would certainly be a supposition based on this particular election result. And we would also assume that the Conservatives did a better job of retaining their leave voters, many of those voters going towards the Brexit party in 2019 in the European Parliament elections. And so lots of switching going on, but not potentially in this election with people going back to the Conservatives and maybe moving to the Conservatives in leave for amongst leave voters. But I think also, and this was certainly true in terms of results, was that the Remain vote was very divided. And this would be consistent with lots of switching amongst the Remain side. And we said this before the election. We said we thought there's lots of volatility in the electorate. But if we were going to see volatility in this particular election, we expected it to be within Leave and Remain voters. So it would be consistent with a story where Conservatives were... Um, some Conservative Remainers were moving to the Liberal Democrats, maybe Liberal Democrat Remain voters moving to Labour, maybe Labour voters moving to the Liberal Democrats, and of course much more within Remain competition in Scotland, making that all the more difficult for Labour there. And so that's just, again, this is a supposition. This is a guess, best guess based on kind of my reading of the data before the election, but I would imagine that this is what is probably going on in terms of that Remain vote being highly divided in the election. So, of course, this is a very substantial challenge electorally and would be one of the main changes that happened after 2017. Obviously, one of the things that you scratch your head about in terms of the 2019 election is why was it so different to 2017 when Jeremy Corbyn made so many advances during the campaign? We can certainly talk about why that was. But one of the explanations there is the, is the small but nevertheless significant recovery, recovery of the Liberal Democrats, and also very, very different campaign. So, those are thoughts so far. I also want to say that geography in this election is hugely important. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a very inefficient now relationship between Labour and the Liberal Democrats' relationship of votes to seats. And within our electoral system, that's really, really damaging um, for parties that have an inefficient spread of their vote. So the Liberal Democrat vote share was only up 1.9% in their own target seats. Um, so if the Liberal Democrats were going to make gains, they weren't making gains in the seats in which they needed to make gains. They were up 3.1% in Labour targets from the Conservatives. So those seats that the Labour Party was trying to take from the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats were up more. And so that kind of challenge there about which parties are taking which votes from which, um, which other party is hugely challenging for the Labour and the uh, Liberal Democrats. And yet the Liberal Democrat vote was up 9.6% in constituencies with large proportions of graduates, but not where it was helping them, and taking votes away from the Labour Party that was also doing well <coughs> in seats with large proportions of graduates. And I showed you that Labour Party share was less, less down in seats with large proportions of students. And Labour share was only down, so one of the lowest drops, was in those Liberal Democrat targets. And so you've got, again, that within Remain Party competition. So that's very challenging. So neither in Labour nor the Liberal Democrats make seat gains against the Conservatives because the vote is split. We also have to remember that the decline in Labour's heartlands in that famous, infamous red wall was in progress over a long period of time. It didn't happen overnight. And so that's a challenge for Labour too, that that became easier and easier over time for the Conservatives to make gain in, gains in those seats. And Labour's support is now very highly geographically concentrated. So this is very challenging. Now I want to wrap up with a few thoughts about what does this mean for the future. 
And the question really is, what's caused this? You know, so has the thing that's caused this been a short-term transitional, you know, very short transitory process? Or has the thing that's caused this been much more long-term? And is it going to stay? Is it going to remain? Is it going to stay the way it was in this particular election? And we wrote um, a book, which has just came out in December. I'm sorry, this isn't a plug, but it's what I wanted. Well, (laughs) maybe a little. But the important thing about this book is what we're arguing is how Brexit shaped the 2017 election and how it was sudden, how there was an opportunity there. There was some potential for this kind of much more, this issue to become much more important, for these different demographics of age and education to be more important than left-right economics, more important than they'd ever been, and as important as left-right economics, and how that came about. And it's important, you know, to think about, you know, whether or not that's going to remain. And we look at lots of different shocks, lots of different things, lots of different moments in recent politics that have really had an important... Um, an important effect in reorganizing the electorate and reorganizing what matters in elections. And you can see here, if you, you know, just thinking about this long-term effect, you think about the sudden nature of the change in what matters to vote choice. You see 2010, this is the relationship of people in different age groups and their likely, their, um, how much they supported Labour Party in 2010, no relationship with age at all. In 2015, you see a slight relationship you see a relationship starting to form. So yes, it happened before 2016, but then you see this radical, really dramatic change in 2017. And then these are just early 2019 relationships that I just dug out for today. Now the question is, does that look like something that can't change, that, that might be a realignment that persists in the electorate? And my best guess is that it, and I will wrap up, I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit over, but my best guess is this really depends on how the parties compete around Brexit over the next five years. So is Brexit going to be the thing that really shapes people's vote choice? And this is why age and education, one of the reasons why age and education are so important now, because that dimension was always very much structured around age and education, and that's become more important. So I think the Labour Party needs to focus on the next election, not the election (laughs) that it's just lost. And think about what's going to be important at the next election and how could they be part of the process of framing what's important at the next election because a lot of what matters in elections is about what the parties are competing on in that particular election. And there's some interesting questions. The Labour may concede now on Brexit. That changes the attack on the Conservatives. It's not going to be that same competition between leave and remain. It's done. But meanwhile, the Conservatives may also downplay Brexit. This would reduce the effect of that shock in terms of electoral choice at the next election. They may blame external actors. They may want to claim their own credit for any successes. The media narrative will change. Possibly more about country, more about us versus those, those external actors that might be making it difficult to form a trade deal or who, who knows. So I think the Brexit shock may weaken but not disappear intellectual relevance. And I think that's a real, really important question for what Labour does next in terms of its competition. And I think a narrative of patriotism, values like, you know, that prioritising the nation gains growth competence would be absolutely crucial. Of course, that will also be the Conservatives' likely approach, but only if they manage to do it. And that is very much down to having an effective opposition. Thank you.
<clears throat> well, that was fascinating. Actually, I could have listened to lots more of it because, uh, I, and we always wait for the British election study with eagerness for every single fact you produce because it is so authoritative <clears throat> and based on such a very large sample. Um, question for Labour, question for the left, wherever you are. Uh, do you really and really and sincerely and absolutely want to win next time? Or have you really got other priorities? Are there other things you mind about more? Do you mind about having captured the Labour Party and holding on to it? Is that more important than actually winning an election? My fear is that it felt as if quite a few people at the top of running this election were more concerned about, if we do lose, how do we still hold on to all of our various uh, positions of power, control of the NEC, that kind of thing. Uh, of no interest to the general voter and highly destructive for trying to run an effective election campaign. Um, I think that, you know, we've had four election losses. You look at, I was writing about this today, the mountain to climb, 124 seats in one go, has never been done by any party ever, but that's what Labour would have to do next time to win. So its determination to win has to be quite phenomenal. The last seat on the list of Tory seats it has to win is North East Somerset. Uh, currently, Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat, which he holds by over 50% of the vote. That's the 326th, I think, that Labour needs to win if it's going to get them all off the Tories. Otherwise, it has to get them off the SNP, which at the moment isn't looking easy, or off <clears throat> a couple off Plaid doesn't look too easy either. Um, so it's about, it's about discipline. I think it's about reflection at this moment. We've got plenty of time to reflect. We won't be a new leader until the 4th of April, and I hope that new leader will take plenty of time before having to absolutely set policies and uh, things that are set in cement for the next four years. I think my strongest feeling about Labour's failure is not just losing the election, but its failure to fight the referendum with total vigour and absolute concentration. Uh, if Labour had been 100% in fighting fit form and determined unequivocally uh, to win for Remain, Brexit would never have happened and we wouldn't be in the dire state we're in now. It would have been in Labour's strong interest for Brexit not to have happened. Look how much you know, Brexit has, harm Brexit has done to the party. Um, I, you know, talking to people at the very top of Labour uh, as the referendum approached, I begged them to get out there coming. They said, no, no, we've got to do the, we've got to fight hard for the May elections first. And then we'll start thinking about it. Well, you know, the referendum was in June. And the May elections was, again, all about securing bases within the party, much more than it was about the massive, life-changing uh, confrontation, or conflict that the country was in at the time. Manifesto. Yes, and almost everything in it was absolutely delightful. Uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, I praised it at the time. I was busy praising Labour at the time because there were 
Whatever criticisms I have of Labour, I have no doubt in my mind that if Labour were in power now, the country would be in a much better state than having Boris Johnson and his extremely weak and alarming-looking cabinet. So that's not the issue. Um, the problem with the manifesto, as everybody has said, is that you know, while each dish on the menu looked scrumptious, uh, voters balked at being asked to eat the whole thing, all the way through, eat their way through the whole menu, and that was really the mistake. It simply lacked all economic credibility. And by the end, by the time you bunged in last-minute 58 billion, which was much more than the, than the Labour was planning to spend on the NHS, on trying to buy the WASPy women, who it turned out mostly weren't, weren't, weren't bought, awful lot of them higher earners, people like Theresa May, who stood to gain 22,000 from that. It was a kind of reckless, uh, panicky last-minute gesture that immediately said, uh, the public could immediately tell that it was a, a panicky moment. Uh, as indeed suddenly, where did free Wi-Fi come from? I was talking to a shadow cabinet minister just about to go on to Newsnight, and as he was just stepping onto the studio floor, producer said, oh, by the way, we will be asking you about free Wi-Fi. What? He said, what? what? Uh, it, your party's just, just going to give everybody free Wi-Fi and going to nationalise the whole thing. Oh, right, he said, and went out there and did the best he could, which was not brilliant. Um, but things like that uh, just must never be allowed to happen. Again, message discipline, message discipline. Back to the old days of pager discipline, if you can remember what terms you too young to know what a pager was. But it was how the pre-97 Labour Party imposed utter discipline on its, on its party with uh, great effectiveness. Unity, split parties, a disaster. Labour is profoundly and deeply split. Uh, as we can see between the other four, now three candidates of the Rebecca Long-Bailey side, the, the, the Unite Len McCluskey side who run the whole of the top uh, cadre of the Labour Party, you know, and the others. Uh, I would like to see uh, all factions within the Labour Party disbanded as organisations. I don't want to see progress there because it gives uh, a reason why momentum feels it has to defend itself and hit back the other side. Momentum does wonderful things in lots of ways out of the country, but within the party, I don't want to see these particular factions. Uh, fat chance, I fear, but at least they may become much less important. Because there is a moment which if you do elect a unify, unifying figure, and I'm a supporter of Keir Starmer, there is a moment when things sort of calm down and people do come together. And I think there is a possibility that we will see um, a much... Uh, a, a much more united party if that actually happens. I think if Rebecca Long-Bailey wins, goodness knows, I think the party will fall apart in a very serious way. And I, much as I thought they were wrong, the MPs, to try and remove Corbyn in 2016, partly because they hadn't got the votes and it was a mad suicidal gesture, uh, the split between large numbers of MPs and some in the party membership would become irrecoverable, I think. Uh, and the sight of you know, Len McCluskey and John Landsman getting behind Rebecca Long-Bailey, who I'm sure in herself is fine, but by their <coughs> backers, we do know them. I fear for what uh, it means for, for Labour. Um, I think there are a whole lot of, you know, the NEC elections are coming up. We shall see whether people will actually vote for people for their own qualities and not for the slate that they're on, either a right or a left slate. 
I would love to see the Labour Party, whoever wins, back proportional representation. I know we're a long way off it, but I think the Labour Party needs to be genuinely, authentically plural uh, and welcoming. When I say I don't like there being, you know, separate groups, it doesn't mean that I don't feel Labour must work with others and understand the nature of pluralism. And until it accepts the idea of proportional representation, it will always seem narrow, tribal, uh, and uh, turning its back on others. Um, you know, we've seen the disaster of what happened there between the Labour Lib Dem votes. Um, I don't know how, how you deal with the Lib Dems in the future, but I'm pretty sure that if Labour wins next time, it's going to be in some form of coalition. And uh, an openness to the idea that other parties have some wisdom. You know, if we had PR, we would have a party on the left. We'd probably have several parties on the left. We'd have a Brexit party or a UKIP or whatever. And I think it's healthier to have those things expressed and argued out in the, on the floor of the House of Commons. Um, and even though we're miles off getting that, a Labour Party that was uh, of that state of mind would seem to me to be a lot more welcoming and uh, a lot more approachable and more likable to the voters. At the moment, the voters don't like Labour. They don't like its lack of patriotism. They don't like seeing Palestinian flags waved at the party conference, not because they're necessarily anti-Palestine, but it just isn't where their minds are or what's worrying and concerning them. They want a Labour Party that is... Uh, puts the things that they care about most at the centre uh, of where they are. We've no idea what kind of government we're up against yet. We'll see the budget. The budget will be very revealing. You know, is it really the end of austerity? No, of course it's not. It'll be some, some sort of eye-catching capital spending because Boris likes that. He can put his thumbprint on it. Um, but the current spending, of which there won't be much in this budget, there won't be more for the NHS than has been announced marginally very little, certainly less than the NHS desperately needs after starvation. I've just written a book called uh, The Lost Decade 2010 to 2020, which comes out in March. And in there you will find all the details of what has been shredded, cut and destroyed in this decade. And the NHS is only the most visible, but you know, you look at things like environmental health or uh, anything else, how, how shredded it's been. So the budget will tell us a bit more about the nature of this government. Um, and who it is that we're up against. I think the focus on green is going to be extraordinarily important. I think Labour's Green New Deal uh, strategy is brilliant, needs much more developing, and needs much more talking about it. It was a shame it wasn't more talked about in the election. We know what Labour values are, wherever you stand in the party. It's for social justice. It's for greater equality. It's for championing those with least. We know those are our values, and that's why everybody, you know, is on the left is of the left. But how you communicate them to a sceptical public that may not always think that what you're going to do for rough sleepers or for people at food banks really touches them is difficult. You have to find a way of those social justice concerns reaching everybody, um, reaching people, people in their own ordinary lives. And yes, they may not like you know, to see too many poor people, but at the same time, they particularly want to know what you're going to do for them. Uh, and I think that was quite missing as well. I'll stop there because I've talked much too long, but um, I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about in the discussion. Thank you.
Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back at NSC, where I was a student just a couple of years ago. But actually, the first time I came to this building was for an occupation, um, occupying the veracity there in 2015. Maybe some of you remember, there was a big wave of student occupation across London. The reason I'm bringing this up is it was just a few weeks before Jeremy Corbyn was elected as leader of the Labour Party. And uh, something a lot of people, I think, overlook is how much the Corbyn movement was built on extra-parliamentary movements, whether it was the student movement, the anti-austerity movement, refugees' welcome rallies. Corbyn was always the guy, the slightly awkward backbench MP, who turned up to every demo and every protest. And we could just count on him. That's why a lot of people who were either Labour members already or not yet find it very easy to trust him. He was our guy. And for a number of years after Corbyn's election, it very much felt like everything was possible, especially after 2017, when Theresa May lost her majority. Um, it felt like we're on the brink of winning power. And all of that collapsed. December 13, we woke up um, with all of our dreams brutally crushed. <laughs> and there were no easy answers. A lot of people woke up looking for easy answers. Uh, they're just, all of them were basically wrong. A lot of people you know, on the Labour left, including, we're saying that we lost because we are too pro-Remain. Um, as we've seen, the data doesn't really show this. We lost voters to both the Tories, but also more pro-Remain parties. At the time before we backed the second referendum, Labour was also polling even below 20%. So that doesn't quite stuck up. Other people said that we lost because we were too left-wing. Well, we also lost in 2010, 2015, when we weren't that left-wing. And in 2017, we came close to power with the same leader. So that also did not give the easy answers we had, we wanted. Um, I'm going to talk at the end about why I think we lost. But what I want to talk about is more of an inside story, what is happening within Labour, and what I think is going to happen to the Corbyn project. Um, the leadership election is maybe too close to call, but there is a very clear favourite. A clear favourite is Keir Starmer, someone who I personally quite like. I've met him. I think he's great. Uh, my friend described him as someone who looks like Tony Blair, uh, has the politics of Ed Miliband, and promises to be as radical as Corbyn. Um, a unifying figure, if you like. <laughs> but I think what that shows is that the direction that the party will take will very much depend on the members and what happens within Labour. And what happens within Labour? Well, the Labour left clearly is facing many questions about whether it can survive and in what form. And first I'll talk about the bad things, the things that ultimately make us weaker. Um, the Corbyn movement was for a long time about an individual. Now I think we're start we started to mature just around, just before the election, find our identity um, as a movement beyond the leadership but it was very personalised. Uh, it did not help in 2016, the split within the POP, the so-called coup, radicalised a lot of the people who joined to support Corbyn. We were an extremely divided party. We were divided to the extent that any criticism was very often on the grassroots or on a higher level silenced. Not just criticism from a kind of moderate wing, but also criticism from the left. For those of us who were not happy about the way Labour is counting anti-Semitism, for example, um, its approach to Brexit, to things like immigration, it was very hard to have an honest discussion within the party. It also made it harder to talk about policies outside of it, where our main message was Jeremy Corbyn. Um, the second thing that happened is 
In 2015, when Comrade was elected, a lot of the message we got from the media is that now we're becoming a party of protest, not a party of power. But actually, we became pretty bad at protest. All the movements that led Corbyn to his leadership, the anti-austerity movement, the migrant rights movement, and so on, have sort of died out. I saw that very much in the student movement, when the same kind of people who in 2013-14 uh, would join activist groups, support cleaner strikes, join occupations. In 2015-16, uh, join local labor clubs and got involved in labor students' faction fights. On a bigger level, uh, trade unions have not seen a revival. Um, membership, liberal strikes remain on an all-time low. And that was a problem, because at a time where it seems like we're very close to power, like an election can be called at any time, uh, it makes sense for a lot of people to focus on electoralism. But in a situation where you see we're facing at least five years of a right-wing Tory government, we might have to rediscover those skills that we seem to have lost. And now I want to talk for a little bit more positively about the things that give me hope. And one of these things, a major one, is the climate movement that uh, is about a year old in its current form that has already achieved quite a bit in terms of changing public opinion on pushing the climate crisis on top of the political agenda in many countries, green parties, um, improving their results. It is also a movement that's internationalist, that's progressive, that talks about organizing across borders, that often talks about migrants' rights, it's also a movement that teaches a whole new generation of young people skills from lobbying MPs uh, to writing newspaper articles, writing digital campaigns, to blocking roles when that's necessary. So that's one thing that's giving me hope. The other thing is there was a whole kind of vibrant culture that was created um, emerging from the Corbyn movement, but also slightly outside of it. We have TWT, an annual festival, the world transformed, an annual festival attracting thousands of people, where we see front bench labor MPs uh, sharing platforms with disability activists who might have never spoken on a um, national event before. Where ideas are discussed, people can debate, and come, can come up with plans and strategies. <coughs> uh, we've seen a range of left media um, we've seen the rise of Novara, the rise of the New Socialist, on the softer left, the Social Review, run by young people, that's organized not just around their preferred candidates and leaders, uh, but around policies. They argue, they discuss, and these platforms have to find ways of reaching out, not just to a labor audience, but more broadly. And then we had the rise of labor campaigns, similarly. Um, at last year's conference, we've seen um, policies coming from members, from the Green New Deal to the four-day week to, in my case, um, freedom of movement, a campaign we organized. And once again, now being very much out of power, our task will be not relying on parliament, because there is very little we can win there, but going back to the grassroots. Because, well, let me come back now to why I think we lost the election. What happened to Labour is, uh, is not unique. We see a crisis of social democracy across Europe and across much of the world. We also see people from Trump to Bolsonaro to empower them from law and justice winning elections, sometimes quite convincingly. And the main reason for this, what I like to say, is very bad ideas are very popular. <laughs> or <laughs> to come back to Brexit, the Tories have discovered that the way that cuts through left or right economics is to fight in the culture war. And the culture war is something 
that will remain a staple of our politics, I think, for long after Brexit is gone. Um, it's something that's quite difficult to talk about um, if for six weeks or less before an election. We prefer to talk about economics, we prefer to talk about free education, minimum wage, things that immediately appeal to people, they're already popular. However, in a situation where we're facing at least five years of self-power, it will be a huge task in our hands, on all of our hands, Labour, the ex-parliamentary left, other progressive parties, to make sure that our side is winning that war. And most importantly, perhaps, um, it will be pushing the climate crisis on the top of the political agenda where it belongs. And that is an existential issue, not just for the left, but for humanity. I don't have a book to promote, but I welcome your questions. Well, listen, thank you all very, very much. Um, I'm just going to start, as I said, asking a question to each of our panellists. Um, so I'm going to start with Professor Green. Um, can you just elaborate with your data? I mean, there's, a, there's an important debate within political science and political sociology about the source of these kinds of shifts to people like Boris Johnson in a number of countries. And it's often framed as a conflict between whether social conservatism and cultural values are important, something that Anna just referred to, or whether it's really ultimately about economic interests, sort of left behind people and so on. Um, now, does the data tell us anything in the case of the British general election about that? I mean, for the students amongst us, you know, there's Englehart and Norris who've weighed in on this about the United States and other countries. But just in this British general election data, does it, you referred to patriotism, but you also referred to people with no qualifications. I mean, what, what's the balance, as you see it, about that debate that comes out of this election? Um, there's an interesting kind of set of research questions, and academics are debating this a lot, as you, as you rightly say. And one of the reasons this debate is kind of really still going on is that if you just look on the face of it and you look at kind of local areas and you'll see there that there's quite a powerful potential economic story. And so the kind of what we would call the contextual data or rather the aggregate data or the, you know, look at the patterns and you'll see the areas where people tend to have low incomes, high unemployment and so on. Those areas are supporting these kinds of outcomes. You see it in Trump, you see it in Brexit. And the first thing you do is say, ah, that's an economic grievance story. Um, now, what then happens is when you analyze that at the level of individuals, so you see what are the attitudes and values and um, beliefs that are really kind of strongly correlated with those votes, what you'll see is that's more likely to be the cultural story, um, and in particular on Brexit immigration. Um, so what's the answer to that? What does that mean? Um, and I think, you know, I'm going to give you a classic, and I don't know what it means for this particular election, but I mean preceding this election. Um, those things are intertwined. And I know that's a really cop-out kind of sit-on-the-fence kind of academic answer, but I think it's true. And so you see, you know, there are genuine economic grievance or economic threat explanations for why people have concerns about immigration. So new research is showing that import shocks are very correlated with concerns about immigration and also that long-term economic decline manifests itself in concerns about immigration. Um, so you can't disentangle them. I've already done one plug tonight, but I do have a paper on this. And uh, <laughs> what, what I'm arguing in the paper is that actually people, um, it's kind of the status threat thing, that people are concerned about different groups doing better than they are. 
and that it's economic as well as cultural. And it's not just about that, it's also about geography. You know, we have this sense that there's just some people who are just doing better over time and there's some people who are not. And if those people that are doing better over the time is not the group to which you belong, then that's a threat. Um, but that's a classic um, academic answer. Sorry. Thank you. Th th thanks very much. I mean, obviously, that's a debate which will carry on. L let me turn to um, to, to Polly. Um, now, we saw from Jane's analysis that the split vote between the Liberal Democrats and Labor was very important. That the, the Leave vote was consolidated under the Conservative column, but the Remain vote was not. And uh, of course, you've been an advocate of tactical voting at various times in the past. But I want you to consider this now in light of the role of the Liberal Democrats in the lead-up to this election. I mean, the Liberal Democrats, after all, said that above all else they wanted to stop Brexit. They had an opportunity to do that. They could have put Jeremy Corbyn in for the sole purpose of doing that, but they wouldn't because they thought they would win seats. And then they went along with Boris Johnson's desire to have an election, which forced the hand of, of Labor, um, along with the Scottish <laughs> Nationalists, who had a better sense of their own interests. But um, so, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think in light of all of that? Because the way you spoke, it was, you know, Labor's attitude might change if it embraced proportional representation. But actually, the Liberal Democrats were in the driving seat to a certain extent in the lead-up to this election. So how should one view tactical voting after this experience? Well, they had a potentially very strong hand, the Liberal Democrats, and I think everybody expected them to do better. I don't know if you did. Um, perhaps you knew knew better, but a lot of people did, and I think um, they played it really badly. I think Revoke came as a great shock to a lot of people, only the most ardent Remainers with the most blinkered view of what anybody thought, else thought other than what they thought, can have thought that sounded all right in a democracy. It didn't sound all right. I mean, I hope we never have any more referendums ever again except the one that <laughs> overturns the last one. But I think you, can, you have, if you've had a referendum going one way, you have to put it back to the people again, ill-judged though it was in the first place. Um, I think that calling the election was insane, but they suddenly thought they could steal a march on Labour, steal whatever. Uh, I think that... Um, centering it around their leader, uh, putting her, plastering her face all over the bus and everything, it just being about her turned out to be a mistake because she wasn't very experienced and she wasn't very good. Um, I think her, the savagery of her assault on Labour was ill-judged. Uh, you know, the determination that n under no circumstances would she ever work with Labour made no sense, and she's saying, I'm going to be Prime Minister, made no sense. Uh, it was all pretty bad. I mean, she had a problem in the sense that most of the seats Lib Dems need to win are, uh, most of the votes they need to win are from the Conservatives on the whole. And so they needed to make sure that the Conservatives couldn't say vote for the Lib Dem means a vote for Corbyn. It was a great problem for the Lib Dems that Labour had such an extremist proposition or such a, an extremist is perhaps wrong, I mean, such an unappealing overall proposition that Corbyn was intensely disliked, the most disliked leader uh, and in, for, for a very, very long time. And so she had difficulties, but I do think she played it very badly. I mean, what would be best for Labour is the Lib Dem simply vanished. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think <laughs> they're going to. They have a habit of clinging on. If they did vanish, uh, 
would it mean that a whole lot of their voters would go to the Tories and make it harder for Labour or easier? I don't know. Perhaps you know. Do you know what effect it would have? So again, it's, it's really hard in this particular election, but it's always hard because it's all about, it's about votes, but it's also about seats. So if we think about the Liberal Democrat collapse in 2015, that benefited the Tories, um, even though it might have been Labour gaining the votes. And it's about where those key constituencies are, where the Lib Dems are competing with the Tories, but it might be the transition of votes to the Labour Party that's tipping the balance. It's, it's, very, it's very, very hard. Um, but I think, you know, a Liberal Democrat recovery does not necessarily mean bad news for Labour unless the geographical picture is, is where they're both competing in the same places. Great. Well, listen, um, Anna, um, I mean, th th there's so many things one could ask about your, your comments, which were really interesting. Um, th what I think I'll ask you about is how Labor should now position itself with respect to Brexit, because, after all, you're very involved in that particular argument. I mean, now, we know, and Jane's made it clear here, that there's multiple things that fed the election result, but we also know from opinion polling in the lead-up to it that the population has become more and more intensely polarised in those months around this very issue, to such an extent that it sometimes trumped their other loyalties. So, given that sort of intense cleavage that's emerged around this issue, what should Labor now do about this issue given that it's become a fact in a certain sense. What would your instinct be? I think in this election, Brexit was still fundamentally an abstract idea. It's definitely something I saw on the doorstep that uh, people were asked why they really want Brexit. It was not about the more money to the NHS that were promised in 2016. It was much more about sovereignty. It was about national identity, um, occasionally about immigration. It was very much a question of identity. It is a question as abstract as you know, people celebrating with a, or wanting to celebrate with a big Ben Bong and wanting their, their 50p coins. But now that Brexit will, will be happening, and it will be happening kind of step by step over, over the years, it will be becoming more clear what it means in practice. Um, it will be job losses, most likely. Um, it will be negotiations about trade deals, a trade deal with Donald Trump that's likely to be very unpopular. Um, even the immigration aspect will become less abstract while it becomes about stories of individual European citizens not being able to stay here anymore. And I think these are the elements that Labour could be really highlighting. Highlighting that it is the Tories' fault, but also highlighting the solutions, not just immediately stopping it, uh, but putting forward a vision. Uh, because like, fundamentally, I think, we should start setting out our vision now. Um, our 2024 vision... Um, and uh, of attacking the Tories on, on these aspects, on immigration, on trade deals, on uh, workers that we're likely to lose, should also fit in with a kind of positive vision for the future. Um, because it's very likely that Brexit will not be a dividing line in five years. But we can start setting up our own dividing lines and start doing it now. Okay. Thank you all very much. Um, well, yes. Thank you all very much. Um, So look, now we've got about 30 minutes for, for questions and discussion from the floor. I, I'm just going to start by taking individuals, but I, I suspect there are a number of people who want to ask questions, so concise questions might be good, and I'll, I'll, I'll direct them as, as I see um, appropriate. So, um, and also, could you wait for the microphone and say who you are and where you're from for our podcast audience, the woman at the back. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. 
my name is Josephine Harabel, and I'm a student at the Workers' Institute. And my teacher is Aravindan Balakrishnan, who is at yeah, present okay. a political prisoner in England. I'd just like to say that I feel outraged that none of the speakers even mentioned the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was besieged by a smear campaign which was, you know, state-backed and Israeli-backed. I feel dis absolutely right. disgusted okay. that... You know, nobody Science. could say this. You know, I just want to say, why is nobody talking about these things? My friend has, has been, you know, the victim of the worst political character assassination you can possibly believe. So I know what Jer Jeremy has gone through. I All right. know. Thank you very much. As I said at the beginning, I do want concise questions because otherwise people don't get to have a go. Um, it was reasonably concise, and I'm, I'm grateful for your bringing it to a conclusion. Uh, somebody has to. Yeah. Well, 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 we'll ask one of the panellists to address that in a minute. I'm going to just take another question. So the gentleman with the scarf on the side. Uh, Keith Raffin. I'm a former MP at the northeast Wales end of the Red Wall. I'm also a former member of the Scottish Parliament, and my question is directed primarily at Professor Green, but I'd be interested in the comments from other members of the panel. You describe Scotland as Miss Scotland as a slightly more complicated picture. Don't you think you're being too Anglo-centric? I mean, if Labour is to revive, it's got... It's got to win back Scotland, where it's in terminal decline, but the SNP is an easy target. And it's in the process of losing Wales. Wales is ignored. Watch the Welsh Assembly elections next year. Labour is very on the defensive. Its situation, I think, is even worse than Polly Toynbee described. All right, thank you. Just hold on for a minute. I'm just going to take a third question, um, especially if there's someone up, up there. Um, so the man with the white collar. Uh, so, Professor Green, in your initial list of uh, in your initial list in the balcony, in the balcony. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Uh, in, in your initial list of uh, five things or whatever, the one that you were, spent least time on was something like progressive family situations or something. I call it alternative situations or something like that. Can you just say a little bit more about that, please? Okay. Um, look, they, they do uh, disproportionately are directed at you, so I, I think you perhaps should start. Um, th there was also this question here, of course, but yeah, carry on. So I'm sorry for being very English-centric. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the interesting things that's going on here is that, you know, we used to think about politics as being primarily about left-right, and that was how we understood politics. And... You know, what we're talking about here is that you've got a left-right dimension. It's still very important. But you've got these other dimensions. And when I say Scotland is slightly more complicated, because it takes a long time to go into. And, um, but, you know, after the independence referendum in Scotland, what we saw was Scottish voters who had been loyal to the Labour Party, Labour voters in Scotland, for the very first time for many people, switching to the SNP, because of Scottish independence. But then, so you have this hugely important cross-cutting cleavage in Scotland, which is doing a lot of the work there, <coughs> is, is the thing that's shifting, it's moving, it's softening people's loyalties. It's those ingrained party ID that would have been Labour, Labour, always Labour, now being about independence, now switching people over to the SNP. Now you have the same thing amongst Labour Leave voters now. 
absolutely ingrained to the Labour Party for many, many years, but then there's this other cross-cutting dimension, which is Brexit, which is, of course, now making those people far softer, more likely to leave, and arguably, you know, once you've left, you become habitually less likely to stick with your party. And so in Scotland, you have independence, you also have the Brexit dimension. Those two things are intersecting, because if you want to be independent, do you want to remain and be independent but within the UK, or independent but in the EU, and then you've also got, of course, left-right politics and everything else, and so that's what I mean by Scotland's more, more complicated. Um, <clears throat> so, in, and Wales is fascinating, important, thank you for raising it, and it's just not possible to go into all these details, but the Labour Party's been in decline in Wales for many years. This is part of the long-term story, and it's part of the challenge that how much of this really is about long-term trends, making people just more likely to shift when something big happens that switches their basis of their vote choice. So I have to say those things two, two together. Liberal conservatism, you know, what I mean there is, you know, when we ask about these kinds of values, what we're talking about there is, you know, what might be like traditional lifestyle, like marriage, like you know, do you believe in censorship? Um, do you think, you know, very traditional forms of um, uh, family values? And then, you know, so the question is, this kind of story about do left-behind voters, do they just look at the world and just not understand it anymore? Is that about cosmopolitanism? Is that about immigration, about diversity? But is it also because they're seeing alternative lifestyles? So I mean homosexual lifestyles, I mean bi lifestyles, you know, people who, you know, in politics now embracing alternative lifestyles and more liberal, progressive attitudes. And is that something that they see as alien and threatening? And so that is a very important... So there's different ways that you can package that up, and I think different things are going to be more important for different people, but that's what I mean. Um, and that, that, you know, so I used to make the joke, and um, I'll move on to the other panelists, who I'm sure, you know, we really want to hear from, but I used to make the joke that um, to Liberal Democrats that why did they do so badly um, in previous elections in 2017? It was like, well, I always thought Jeremy Corbyn was brilliant Lib Dem. And it's that kind of combination of left liberal values, which is very, very popular amongst young people, amongst graduates, those people the Labour Party has been successful amongst, as well as Brexit being important and dividing people among age and education lines. So there's, it's not just about Brexit, it's also about the other dimension. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> can, I, can I just direct this question about Scottish nationalism to you? Because is there a sense in which, Anna, the, the, the north of England voters have become English nationalists and, and that Brexit is, is to them what the SNP's demands is in Scotland? And what would that mean if it were true? So I would agree with that. They're obviously very different nationalisms, but fundamentally it is, it is a, a bit of a similar picture where the dividing line stopped being by economics, um, where a lot of people will vote for of nation first. That is the kind of problem we're seeing definitely in Scotland. That is a problem we've seen um, with the Brexit vote as well. Um, and how we solve that, as again, there is, there is no easy answers, uh, because I don't think nationalism is something that can be faked. I don't think that by doing a little bit of it will take votes from people who are offering a lot of it. If anything, it can only fuel the flames of the other side. Um, it will be a long-term project, getting back Scotland, definitely. Um, focusing on economic policy, focusing on, uh, on class, not nation, I would say. Um, and in the longer term, I mean, I also think kind of proportional representation. 
um, is something we really need in this country to make sure that uh, that we can have a Labour government regardless, that uh, kind of national parties uh, don't have disproportionate influence over what Manchester looks like. I think I'm a little more optimistic about where we might be with Scotland next time. Having talked to some of the Scottish candidate, Labour candidates who, who lost in Scotland, some of them are quite optimistic that this is by no means the end of the story. I mean, the SNP is doing very badly on its uh, social policies, on its uh, education and its health. Uh, you know, in five years' time, that's going to look worse. Uh, very often, Nicola Sturgeon talking incessantly about uh, independence has been a cover for running a pretty ropey government, and it will have been going a jolly long time by then. I think Labour absolutely has to be unionist. I don't you want any wobbling on that. I think it absolutely has to be. You know, if you are, a, you know, if you're a radical, but you actually are an internationalist by nature, and you don't believe that separatism is the answer to political problems, Labour is the place for you. And I think there's a chance for that to make reasonable headway. I mean, it's surprising that even now there isn't a majority for independence. Well, you might think this would be the maximum time. Boris Johnson had just been, been elected. Scots didn't choose Brexit. Uh, this should be the really riding high moment, and they're still not over the line. And I think it'll have, you know, whatever happens in terms of how going on asking for a referendum, not getting one, maybe running some kind of Ill illegal one, they're not there. She won't do it until they are. And I think uh, Labour's got a good chance of winning back a few, quite a few seats and getting back its, uh, its presence in Scotland. Am I wrong? Tell me. Perhaps yeah. we should take another round of questions, but bear that, bear that in mind. Um, so we've got a woman here with a colourful scarf. If you just wait for the um, microphone. Hello, my name is Yvonne Esterhazy, and I'm actually a German uh, economic uh, journalist. Uh, I have a question for Polly and maybe one for Anna. Um, it's about the Red Wall constituencies, because uh, Boris Johnson himself said that, you know, he, these uh, votes were just lent to him, and he will have to deliver at some point. Obviously, with Brexit reality kicking in, um, you know, these areas might um, feel the economic pain far stronger than other areas of the UK, and the big manufacturing companies might actually eventually pull out. So no matter how much money he might pour into these places in terms of infrastructure spending, I mean, the people will feel the pain. So is that a hope for, for Labour, possibly, in well, the It's a dismal term? hope, isn't it? I mean, you, you can't hope that Nissan leaves Sunderland. You just can't. But if it does, and if it loses all of its chain of, uh, uh, of supply chain of uh, you know, lots and lots of jobs, and culturally, you know, car manufacturing has been a success story. Uh, we can talk about the sort of details, you know, problems of it, but uh, you know, if that goes, that would be a mighty disaster for the, for the Northeast, and I think for the government too. And they will do all they can to prop it up, I'm sure, in any way they can. But, you know, if the supply chain isn't there, if it isn't possible for them to do just-in-time deliveries across the channel, uh, it will go. Uh, and it may be not immediately, it's just that new models won't be built there. Um, 
I think, you know, it has been a long time coming. The, you know, the, as you said, the red wall has been crumbling brick by brick for quite a while. There were an awful lot of MPs who's, you know, in those places who saw it happening, losing their, uh, their majorities, getting smaller and smaller, and those who survived, you know, on very thin majorities. I, I think you have to believe that a lot of that is rewinnable. Part of it is taking away the negatives. I mean, I was quite right to say you can't, you can't imitate nationalism. But one thing you can do is to make sure you damn well sing the national anthem, that you stand up for the country, that you sound like a leader who believes in the country and its values, and that you're not more interested in Venezuela than you are in Sunderland. I mean, that's a good start, just to take some of the negatives away. Um, and I think that uh, you know any reasonable leader will do that, because it's sort of in the instincts of most leaders to stand up for their country and look as if they do and feel as if they do. I mean, patriotism is fine. It's in all of us. We all love our country. We love its history, its countryside. We love the things we know about it. Different ones of us will love different things about it. It's very familiarity, having been through its school system, having experienced everything that we know about it. It, it is family. Uh, very differently perceived by different people, but nevertheless very strong within us. It is not beyond the wit of the Labour Party, which it certainly did in the past, whether under Harold Wilson or whether under, uh, uh, or whether under Tony Blair, to convey a sense that you actually love your country. That's just step one. So I'm not too worried about that, I think. May I ask Anna quickly? Oh, very think, quickly, though, yeah, yeah just super uh, quickly. If you don't feel that the Labour Party should focus more on the new economy as well, you know, I mean, obviously, unemployment rates are very, very low in this country, but still there's economic grievance. We've got zero-hour contracts here, lots of people in the gig economy who have unsecured jobs. Is that – you haven't even mentioned that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I also want to briefly come back to the Red Wall question, because the Red Wall is something we suddenly started talking about as if it was always a staple of politics. But the first time I ever heard that term was a few days, I think, before the election. And these are very, very different, very diverse seats, you know, uh, in terms of size, urban, rural, where there's safe seats or not. Um, what is true is that we lost older voters and we lost socially conservative voters. And I think that kind of makes more sense, the kind of geographic divide. Um, and uh, what I will also say is that a message of blame of blaming the Tories can only go so far because the Tories will find a ways of redirect that towards Europe once again for like, not giving us the best deal, uh, towards migrants and so on. Um, when we criticize them, I would say always a message of hope. And a message of hope, I agree, that needs to include an offer to the new economy to people who are precariously employed, uh, people in zero-hours contracts who, who <coughs> Um, face a prospect of renting their entire lives and so on. But a lot of these voters we already have. These are the kind of young people who uh, we definitely need to keep. Uh, we will also have to have an offer to older voters, and that's something you should start thinking about now. And I don't necessarily agree that a bit more of singing national anthem will necessarily win those. Um, I think there's something much deeper than that that we start, have started addressing now, but I say with a kind of coherent narrative and coherent strategy where we don't wait until uh, the election campaign to figure out what we stand for, but we stand now. Okay, now I want to take, sorry, I want to take a, 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 a two or three questions if possible. So um, this gentleman with the glasses at the back has been waiting for some time. 
Um, thank you very much. Um, I once worked with a colleague who was a member of the Labour Party and who told me um, that, um, that he said there'll never be peace in Northern Ireland until the Protestants are thrown out. I hope that is not the view of the panel and many members of the Labour Party. My question is really follows on from the last lady's uh, question. Um, who do you think in the Labour Party, what's the thinking on the new economy, even allowing for the fact that AI is hyped? It's perhaps not going to come to the extent we think and not going to come as soon, but we have to assume it, it will come. Um, okay. I'm not sure they've got any ideas, but I'm not sure anyone anywhere has any ideas, so I'd welcome your views. Okay, thank you. Now, um, concision is the order of the day. Um, this, this woman uh, in the second row, um, anyone who wants to be a model of concision will be much appreciated by the chair. <laughs> <coughs> Um, hi, my name's Grace. I'm studying for a Master's of Public Administration at the LSE. Um, so my question is just kind of looking beyond Brexit and patriotism and all those bigger issues and just looking at Labour's manifesto. For all, I guess, particularly young people, you kind of look at that and see that as the future you sort of wanted and then it obviously gets obliterated in an election. So it's obviously going to take a kind of very strong leader to be able to or be willing to pursue that again. Um, and you talk to people canvassing, I'm sure Anna has experience of it, trying to like sell a four-day working week to someone is a very foreign concept for a lot of people. So my question is kind of about whether you actually thought Labour could sell that manifesto. If they could, how were they meant to sell that manifesto? And if you just don't think that is feasible, then where does that leave Labour and the party's direction? All right, thank you. And I'm just looking up here and uh, the gentleman with the scarf at the back. <coughs> Hi there, my name's Luke. Um, I'll ask two lightning questions, if that's okay. One, is it not the case that for as long as identity and nationalism dominates British politics, that Labour will lose? And it really needs other issues to dominate, the NHS, the economy, all of those things where Labour is strong. And secondly, um, to Polly, is there not a danger in uh, delegitimizing a third of party members because as you see from tonight's discussion the Corbyn movement is not just Len McCluskey and Unite um, there's also another element to the Corbyn project and even if it was that's still the second biggest trade union in the country um, so that's still a part of the Labour movement. Now, look, I'm just going to direct these questions to different people, otherwise we'll, we'll be here for a long time. So, um, Anna, could you just address the point about selling the manifesto that um, this person raised? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important point, a very major one. Um, the problem with the manifesto wasn't particularly that it was bad. I think there are all the policies there that are good, that I can see definitely in five years will be very appealing as well. Uh, things like nationalised broadband, um, giving everyone access to the internet, um, I can see that definitely being adopted by like, other left parties across Europe and the world as well. Um, it's like the four-day week, there's actually plenty of evidence that it will improve uh, quality of life. Um, but what we have done is uh, we put them in the manifesto very late in the day with a coherent strategy about how we talk about them. Well, now we face five years when we can talk about them, and we can, yes, we have to prove that they're economically credible, they're deliverable, show exactly where the money is coming from, but also set out a story about, you know, where they fit our vision for the country, a country that's not looking to the past, like a lot of people have said labor uh, is, but like looks in the future, because these uh, are exactly the kind of policies that we will need in the future, and a Green New Deal especially is something that should be front and center of our messaging. 
Um, on the second question of, of identity and nationalism, um, I mean, I, I definitely agree that um, we should be, you know, we should be influenced in the debate as much as possible, uh, making it about the NHS, making it about poverty, making it about um, class. You know, a bit of populism, I don't mind, talking more about the billionaires and, and the people on top, um, definitely. At the same time, um, as I said before, like, the culture war will not completely go away. Um, the Tories will be using it to their advantage. And uh, we need to find ways of, of fighting our own culture wars. And I'm fairly optimistic about the possibility of changing people's minds when we don't just you know, copy racists, but we say the reason why um, your life is not the way you want it to be is not because of immigrants, it's because of the Tories, those people who have all the money and power. Uh, this is very simplistic. You know, I don't think there's a, a very kind of straightforward correlation between just like um, you know, neoliberalism and inequality um, and the belief in um, kind of, you know, socially conservative ideas. Uh, but it can be part of our messaging. And I think these two things can be combined, like a positive economic message with like, our positive social message. Okay. I'm just going to make one question for a person just so that we can have more questions. Um, Jane, I was actually going to direct your attention to that point about nationalism um, because, in a sense, it's sort of class versus identity. Is there something you can do to shed light on that, whether it would be in the interests of Labor to take a stance one way or the other? So I think, you know, it's true that if, la if the big issue is the NHS, then that's better for Labour. That's true. Um, if the big issue is poverty, then that's potentially better for Labour. But it's not clear to me that that's, that's kind of not a magic silver bullet. I mean, you know, what you really want is a Labour Party, if you're going to form a government, that's actually good on lots of things. <laughs> and I'm sorry for states, you know, so almost kind of making the kind of really obvious point. But, you know, you need, um, the Labour Party needs to be more competent on the economy. The Labour Party needs to be competent full stop. You know, the Labour Party needs to be competent on lots of issues, addressing lots of... I mean, we have this kind of almost this mentality that, you know, you can win by just sort of segmenting and just going for different kinds of voters. Of course, parties win when they get majorities. And I know it's just, it's kind of almost too simple to say it, but it's, you know, the, the appeal has to be broader than that. Um, but nevertheless, I, you know, I did make the argument in my talk or try, say that, yes, you know, if Brexit stops becoming or stops being the primary or one of the most important dimensions, then that mm. at least moves the competition back onto traditional ground. you did argue ground. that how the parties frame the debate in the future is going to be important to the outcome. And in a sense, this is about that, isn't it? It's about whether they try to increase the salience of certain issues with respect yeah. to others. And I think, you know, what's really crucial here, I think, is delivery. It's, you know, one of the things that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, and really Boris Johnson, have really majored on is actually delivering on promises actually saying that we're going to leave the EU and I'm going to make sure it happens and I'm going to do anything. I'm going to kick people out of my party. I'm going to be absolutely ruthless. I'm going to jolly well deliver. And, you know, I think that the, the degree to which that doesn't happen is the moment where the Labour Party is able to critique that and to, you know, that kind of blame game is then absolutely <coughs> crucial because if Boris Johnson doesn't deliver on those promises, doesn't um, succeed in convincing people that this is a different kind of politics where actually it really does matter who you vote for and that things actually really will change, then I think that could be very devastating for the Conservative Party. Thanks. So, Polly, there was also a question about what you had said specifically about uh, momentum. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think momentum has, <coughs> has itself fragmented a great deal. I mean, another Europe is possible. It's great. And it couldn't be more different to Len McCluskey. 
batting on day after day on the television about how Brexit did it. It was all Keir Starmer's fault for going Romani. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people in, in Momentum, you know, they're uh, fantastic campaigners all the way through the election. Uh, they were terrific, and the idea that they all are, you know, Len McCluskey and John Landsman clones, just not true. They're much more like her than they are like them. And um, I think a lot of them were really affronted at being presented, you know, this was a grassroots democratic movement, presented with a ballot paper that said, do you want Rebecca Long-Bailey or not? No, no question of voting for anybody else. I mean, how could you give people a ballot paper like that and call yourself democratic? So I think that of its own accord, you know, the great majority will want Labour to win, will fight for Labour to win, and all right, they may have slightly different emphasis on this and that and the other, but I don't see it as a fundamental problem. I don't see them as being like militant. For one thing, militant was very small, but incredibly effective. I was in the Lambeth Labour Party during the militant years. Um, uh, and they were all, that was a sort of party of Len McCluskey's uh, and worse. Uh, and... Uh, much more destructive, I think, that the constructive elements of momentum. But I just would like them not to be a sectarian, separate within the Labour Party group of that kind with its own ballot papers any more than any other groups too. Okay. Look, I'm going to try and squeeze in another round, but don't be offended if everyone doesn't get their question answered. So uh, can this gentleman with the glasses here in the fifth or so row, um, just wait for the microphone. Just wave your hand around. and the Yep. Um, yeah, um, my name is Ben, and I'm, uh, I suppose I'm a Labour Party member, uh, a new mem Labour Party member, and also um, a rather concerned um, member of the public um, at the prospect of the next 10 possible years of uh, <coughs> uh, uh, Tory rule. Um, I think the elephant in the room, which hasn't really been sufficiently addressed by the panel, was Jeremy Corbyn himself. Um, I don't think this man was perceived um, to be fit to be Prime Minister for, very, uh, for, for very many reasons um, which are too, too numerous to go into. Um, and I think that looking forward, it's critical that the Labour Party makes a strategic decision in terms of its choice of, next, of the next leader. This person has to look Prime Ministerial. This person has to be a unifier. And this person also has to reach those parts of the country which Tony Blair managed to win in 1997 and two other subsequent elections. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Now, now we, if we want to get questions in, we're going to have to be um, quick. Um, so, yep, this bloke's been waiting here. Just wait for the microphone just on the front row. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Lee Martinane. I've been a uh, I've been a Labour Party uh, member for five years. Um, and also, can I say I'm really, 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 really sorry that uh, that on the day after commemorating the Holocaust and the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, <coughs> the very first question of this session was at best very, very crass, very, very insensitive. And can I, you know, particularly after all my Jewish friends of the party have been through. Uh, uh, Thank you to the panel for not giving that question one single moment of airtime. Um, but to come on to 
a topic which I think has uh, a phrase that I think has been a dirty word in the Labour Party actually over the past five years and that is the centre ground. Where does the panel think the centre ground is today? We have talked about it in micro terms uh, throughout this evening. Uh, it goes to um, a question that was posed about how does Labour kind of like reconcile the almost kind of like so-called culture war and things that's going on. Surely it's not that difficult. Okay, thank you. Um, now, um, there's so many people who want to ask questions. I'm just going to take this uh, man here at the front, but please be brief. Yep. Uh, I'm Antonino Uvira. I'm an alumnus of the LSE. Uh, uh, it's really about the chap from the balcony. Uh, when the EHRC report comes out about the Labour Party and anti-Semitism, I know it's a statutory body, uh, so you have to do what it says, but uh, what effect will that have on the Labour Party and its, uh, its image to the public? All right. Now, look, I'm going to direct them again, if you don't mind, because otherwise we won't get... I mean, Jane, do you mind addressing the point about the centre ground? Where is the centre ground? Because that's something that maybe you can shed some light on. It's so, a moving feast, I suppose, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when Boris Johnson starts, you know, talking about investing in public services, he's trying to move the Conservative Party towards the centre ground in left-right economic terms. Um, and so, you know, that makes that challenge, that makes that, that centre crowded, if you like, amongst voters that see that as a genuine shift and believe it. I think, you know, what I'm talking about also is like multi-dimensionality in terms of where the centre is. So, you know, are we just thinking about the centre in left-right economic terms? Are we thinking about the centre in these other dimensions? And in a sense, what the Labour Party was doing on Brexit was adopting a centre position, a sort of compromise, a position, you know, that wasn't very strongly leave, that wasn't very strongly remain. Um, so the centre ground is not just on one issue. Um, the centre ground on um, left-right economics, I think, was you know, broadly competed over in the election. And the other thing to say is the centre ground does shift. And so if there are very stringent austerity measures, then it's likely the public will move against that. And if there's a lot of investment and a lot of spending, then the public may also move against that. So we have to try to figure that out in the context of Brexit, mm. which is going to be complicated. And one of the paradoxes is perhaps that the centre ground was shifted by Jeremy Corbyn in certain respects, but in other respects, namely Brexit, uh, no, no great effort was made to do so. Um, it's a bit invidious, but can I ask you to address the question about the leadership? I mean, because it wasn't really discussed. I mean, what, what, I mean, you can address Corbyn, or what does a leader need to do more generally? But... Um, yeah, I'm happy to say there's a Corbyn question. It is it's definitely true that Corbyn is nationally unpopular. Um, it was true when he got first elected. Um, in, 2016, in 2017, we saw that, that the importance of that was actually lowered once we, he inspired tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of canvases around the country where we had much more, much discipline, where we could sell our vision. The personal lack of popularity of Corbyn um, slightly lowered in people's priorities, but it also worsened before and during this election because of, uh, well, various things. His indecision on Brexit, I think from both sides, he was criticized for not being able to pick a side and campaign for it. Um, anti-Semitism, an extremely legitimate and real problem. Well, I, I fully agree that Labour needs to get his house in order. So he wasn't popular. Um, I don't think we have simple answers now about who we should um, elect as leader. Um, you know, I have some preferences, but I think all the candidates have uh, their own strengths that need to be appreciated. Um, the thing about looking prime ministerial, well, it's something the right doesn't have to do, do they? 
I don't think Donald Trump with tweets and you know his weird, his weird comments is particularly prime ministerial. Or even Boris Johnson, who you know the way he talks about gay men or Muslim women is an idea of a kind of respectable prime minister. The idea of a prime minister is can change, and I am a bit worried that by saying prime ministerial, we are imagining someone who's always and forever a white man from a certain class background. Um, what well, what might be much, much more important is, yes, the kind of personal popularity, but also the message we kind of collectively sell. So, Pauli, um, yeah. I mean, there was this question about um, the anti-Semitism issue, and could you address that? Yes. Uh, I mean, without doubt, Labour will have no choice. It will have to obey whatever it is that the uh, EHRC tells it it must do to purge itself of the taint of anti-Semitism. We don't know what that is yet, but whatever it is, just without question, uh, you know, and they have the power to send people in, to monitor everything it does. Um, it's a very, very powerful instrument, uh, an EHRC investigation. And with any luck, it's actually exactly what Labour needs, and if the new leader completely obeys and does what's required, perhaps at last this can go away. I mean, most of us find it up, it's still hard, still kind of pinching ourselves to think of labor that always used to have, you know, such strong <coughs> support from so much of the Jewish community. It's kind of bemused to find that the party has got itself into the situation that it's in now. I mean, when I was young, uh, a lot of people went to kibbutzes on their year off, and there was a, a, a natural sense that that there was a, 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 an aspect of uh, Israeli life that was connected with labor values. And the fact that there are now governments in Israel that we don't like, like there are governments in America that we don't like, doesn't make you kind of against the country and its people. It makes you against the government. And somewhere along the line, the, somewhere along the line got blurred and uh, people didn't understand the crucial difference between you know, being against a government and being against a people. Can I? Well, listen, th yeah, please. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Just really briefly, I found that whole thing utterly bemusing. But I think, you know, for the country as a whole, we, the other elephant in the room is that the country was in complete stasis. You know, Parliament couldn't agree on anything. It was a, it was, it was a crisis. I mean, it was a really difficult political time. And what was the Labour Party doing? You know, it was it was it was in a complete mess on anti-Semitism, and so I think just when the opposition should have been holding the government to account, so I think that was the other huge context that was essentially, you know, essentially extremely problematic with that particular issue as well. And it was interesting how far it went that you know you went <coughs> out canvassing in northeastern seats and things, and people who you'd think might not have totally absorbed this. Actually, they had. Yeah, yeah. Actually, people really had, and they came back and they mentioned it. People who were not Jewish themselves possibly didn't know any Jewish people either. They'd somehow taken this as being uh, a really toxic thing going on inside Labour. Mm. Yeah. Well, listen, there's many, many people that want to ask questions, but I'm afraid we, we have come to an end. I mean, we've heard a, a number of interesting observations. I mean, we, we heard from Professor Green about the shifting social and ideological bases of support on which Labor can draw. We heard from Anna Oppenheim about the fundamental importance of extra-parliamentary movements and their connection with Labor. And we heard from 
Polly Toynbee a, a number of messages which I think underlying them was a certain sort of optimism really about the potential for, um, for electoral revival. Um, all of which makes me think that we're in a better position than when we started the panel and I'd ask you to join me in thanking our speakers for that.